Good morning. Thank you, worship team. That was that was really great. Forgiveness is only found in one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be reading from both the Old Testament and the New this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles or you can read from the screen. First up we have uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 to 20 and it's the New International Version that's where you're reading from. There was a certain man from Rithaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zulf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah... He gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. 
Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. And we move now to a New Testament reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 through to 14. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you, Alan. Uh, welcome this morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. My name is Jonathan Hoffman. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, how are we going on our New Year's resolutions? All right, are you resolution people? Are we? Maybe, maybe this is one of your resolutions. We're going to be at church more often. Uh, if that's you, congratulations. If not, that's why we got the live stream, right? Uh, enjoy, enjoy uh, from wherever you are. Uh, I did want to say if you are visiting with us or you're new with us this morning, two helpful bits of information you can find at the info desk, which is at the back. Uh, this is just a bit of an overview of, of WDBC, some of our ministries, who we are, what we do. And uh, you're welcome to pick up one of those. You might have got one on the way in. And if you're visiting with us, please fill out a welcome card and stick it in the box. I know the box says tithes and offerings, but you can consider your email address an offering. That's fine. You can offer that to us. We will try to be faithful with it. Uh, we won't try to spam you too much. Uh, but yeah, we would love to be able to be in contact with you, to get to know you, to know who you are. And uh, because Sunday's quite a busy time, uh, it's, often, it's often easiest if you just fill out one of these, drop it in the back, and one of us can contact you during the week. Uh, with that, I just want to extend a welcome to you, uh, say that we're glad that you're here, 
and uh, welcome to uh, First, First Samuel. Uh, we are entering a new year, and I don't know about you, but I feel like adulthood is a lot about managing expectations. They don't really tell you that. They say, go to school, get your degree, learn your expertise. They don't really have a course on like managing expectations <laughs> as you go through life. Some of you have figured out how to do that, and you're looking really happy and comfortable and great. Others of you, you're still working out how to manage expectations. Uh, but I really like a quote from Paul Miller, who wrote a book called A Praying Life. And, and in it, he describes, uh, he describes what happens when our expectations and reality don't meet. <laughs> Seldom does reality exceed our expectations, uh, but oftentimes reality falls short of our expectations. And, and what what Miller calls the space in between our expectation and reality. He calls it the desert of disappointment. <laughs> the desert of disappointment. And as we come to the text this morning, we're going to be looking at someone, this woman, Hannah in particular, who was living in a desert of disappointment. And that might be relevant to you right now for any number of reasons. If not, I'm sure you'll find yourself there one day. Uh, and so I encourage you to, to listen, listen to what God has to say to us as we think about how we deal with our disappointment. We're going through a series through 1 Samuel called The Lord's Anointed, and this is why, just a little reminder of why we're studying this book. There's really four reasons this is relevant. The first is it sets a baseline of our, of our theology, it, it sort of... It, puts a foundation in place of what God is like, who he is, not necessarily who we want him to be or what we think he is, but who he says he is. The second reason it's relevant is to locate the favor of God. So much of our existence is about trying to find and fill the good, to find and fill the good in our lives. And this will help us to know what that is. The third reason it's relevant is because as often is the case when we find ourselves disappointed or we were in that desert, we think the answer is more power. <laughs> the answer is more control. And this book has a lot to say that will help us to think twice and might actually go to curb our lust for power and control. And finally, and I would say most importantly, we're studying this book and it's relevant to us because it's going to help us savor the presence of Jesus. Savor the presence of Jesus in our lives. Save us, savor the presence of Jesus for who he is and where he is right now and what he's doing for us as we look forward to his coming. And if you think about it, that's really important as a Christian. If you don't have a sense of the sweetness of Jesus and who he is, the goodness of Jesus, then the prospect of his return is not something you're going to be looking forward to. It might not even be something you dare hope in at all. So that's why this is relevant. And what do we mean by anointed? I think just you're going to hear that word a lot, and, and this is by no means a textbook definition. This is just sort of my uh, feeble attempt to put these things together. But, but I think you can make a case through Scripture that the anointed, the anointed one is the person who enjoys God's favor, the person who establishes God's rule, and the person who embodies God's holiness. These three things intersect in the Lord's anointed. And as Christians today, we believe that is Jesus Christ. But this book is written to us before Jesus Christ. As we said in this idea of uh, dealing with disappointment, the, the title of this, this sermon, At God's Door, because a lot of this story takes place at the door of the temple. It's literally right outside the door of 
the place where God would meet with his people. And so as we come to a story that's at God's door, I'm going to ask you to be thinking about what would you do if you knew where God's door was? Would you go up to it? Would you knock on it? Would you stand there and wait? What would you do if you knew where God's door was? What would you do? Uh, another way of phrasing this question is, what does it look like to live with God in a fallen world? If this God is perfect and holy and awesome and all the things that we sing about and, and all the things that we say as Christians, what does it actually look like to live with this God when our existence is not perfect, when our existence is filled with pain and disappointment and deserts and anger and jealousy, and lack, <laughs> right? What does it look like to live with God in a world like this? And, and I hope what you'll come to see today by the end of our message is this, that knowing God is learning to trust him with our deepest pain. Knowing God is learning to trust him with our deepest pain or our deepest longing. With that, here's the outline. This, this story from Hannah is going to show us how to approach God amidst our despair. And again, you might be sitting on cloud nine. You might feel like the world is your oyster and everything is going just as you had planned it. You carefully lined up the dominoes and they're all ticking over and you're just sitting back and watching. But I, I suspect for many of us, that is not our experience of life. And this story sets a tone, it sets a relevant question. It also speaks something to our world because the nation of Israel was not one that was filled with righteousness. It wasn't filled with goodness and holiness and justice. The land of Israel, the land of God's people was filled with compromise and corruption. And so Hannah, as we said last week, Hannah is in some ways kind of a microcosm or a representative, if you will, of the state of the nation at the time. Someone whose name means grace, and that's what Hannah means, it means grace, but yet in her life was not experiencing grace. In her life was not experiencing life and fruitfulness. Literally, she was a barren woman. So as we come to this story today, we're going to look at it in, in sort of four parts. The first, Hannah's need, then Hannah shamed, then Hannah's vow, and then finally, Hannah remembered. This is the four uh, parts of our passage this morning. I invite you now to bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we come to your word today and we ask that you would encourage us through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us of spiritual things, for we are not just flesh and blood but we were given a spirit from you. And so, God, as we offer ourselves to you again today, may you instruct us in the secret place. May you form and enliven and strengthen our hearts that we might have courage, that we might be a people of faith, a people who walk with you in this fallen world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we come to Hannah's need, and look with me now in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's a certain man from Ramathame, a Ziphite from the hill country of Ephraim, uh, Ephraim excuse me, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram. Elkanah's name means something like, my God is the creator. 
and we get a bit of his background there. He's an Ephraimite. What he, he lives about 15 miles or two days journey from the temple. That's the relevant parts for you there. Uh, he has two wives, one called Hannah, her name means grace, and the other called Panina. Now, Panina means fruitful, fertile. Panina had children, excuse me, Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Now, Hannah is most likely the first wife. It was common for kings and really noble people of those days to perhaps have more than one wife, but for the everyday person, they probably wouldn't. And so we, we have the sense that Elkanah is a man of means in that when his first wife, Hannah, cannot bear him children, he, is, he has the means, as it were, to take a second wife. And we know that Penina is fulfilling what uh, her intent was from Elkanah. So year after year, we're told this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now we get introduced to a couple other, a few other characters here. We're going to hear more about Hophni and Phinehas uh, in coming weeks. Eli makes an appearance here, and what you need to know is he is the priest. He's the priest who is at the tabernacle or at the temple. Now, this is not the temple that Solomon would build, so you're not to, we're not to imagine some elaborate structure. This is the place where the tent that Moses had in the wilderness finally sort of landed once they got into the promised land. So they didn't throw that tent away. They put it at Shiloh. And so this is the tent that Moses ministered in, and now, Shai, uh, now Eli is the priest here at this temple. And we have in front of us, again, uh, a woman whose name means grace, but whose life is not full of grace. Uh, this book opens with a story of a woman who's unable to bear children, and for women at this time, and, and I really encourage you not to just react with a modern lens, but to really enter into what it might have been like to be a woman at this time. Because a woman living at this time, not being able to bear children, it meant losing security, losing value, and losing honor in society. I'm not saying that bearing children is a woman's value. What I am telling you is, if you were a woman living in that day, to not be able to bear children had significant impacts upon your life. Think about it. If your husband died, as they often would before you did, and you had no children who would look after you. If your family's income was largely dependent upon agrarian factors, you know, farming and, and, and the like, your ability to have children is, is, in a sense, the ability to increase your workforce, the ability to increase your income. And then, if you're, as a woman, are restricted in so many areas from participating in society, but this is a place where society has deemed you have value, to not be able to contribute in that way meant that you did not have much value at all. Again. I'm not saying this is how I see it. I'm saying this is what we know of the world at that time. And so, although Hannah is loved by her husband, it's easy to see why she might be despondent. She lacks purpose. She's been made redundant. Out with the woman named Grace. <laughs> 
yeah, we'll still feed you and care for you and, and we'll love you and, and you're great, Hannah. And bring in Fertile Myrtle. Bring in Penina. And she will raise up the children. She will bear children. And this is what she does. This is Hannah's need. And I think it's really important for us to not just look at this and say, well, I'm really glad I don't live in that time. As if we didn't have our own needs. As if we didn't have our own levers and mechanisms where we find security, where we find value, where we find worth and honor in society. As, we weren't able to, as if we are not able to, to be made redundant in our own ways. But fundamentally, Hannah, as the scripture says, her womb is closed. God has shut her womb. Just like he shut the door of the ark, just like he shut the mouths of the lions, just like he shut the gate to paradise, God has shut her womb. And Hannah has no ability to bring life from that. There's a word to us here for those of us who are trying through our own strength to open doors that God has shut. This is not to say that God can't open some of these doors. He does. He's going to open Hannah's womb. He's going to give her a child. But when we are faced with our need, that's the point where some of us double down and say, well, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to work better. I'm going to improve myself. I'm going to do the thing harder than anyone else has ever done the thing so that I can get to where I deserve to be. In some ways, our society isn't really prepared to recognize those with a true need. In our culture, in our society, what we do is we operate in a transactional way. We've, we, we've even made our relationships with one another transactional, and the whole dating app industry has taken off. This is what I can give to you, what can you give to me? But here is a woman who is in true need, and there is nothing she can do about it. That's the picture that the text paints for us. And it asks us, are we prepared to reckon with our own need? Are we prepared to understand that we as people have limitations and that perhaps there are things that God has put into our life and said, this is shut and there is nothing you can do about it except ask me. <laughs> this is Hannah's need. Now, as if that weren't bad enough, um, it's going to get worse. Whenever the day came to sacrifice. Now, the NIV puts this as kind of like a, a it, it sort of imagines like a regular occurrence. But, but what's really going on here is, is we're getting a glimpse of a particular day. So every year they would go to worship. And as part of the worship, you'd bring your sacrifice. And after the sacrifice was made to the Lord, the meat would be cooked. And you would share in the sacrifice. So the person who brought the sacrifice was allowed to share in the sacrifice. And that was a way of symbolizing that you have relationship with God. You have fellowship with God. So they would eat the sacrificial meal together, just like we sit at the Lord's table and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to show that we participate 
and we have fellowship with God. Well, this is what they would do before Jesus came. And so they are there, they're eating the sacrifice, and as they're doling out the portions of the sacrifice, Elkanah would give a double portion of the meat to Hannah. So we'll get there in a second. He would give portions of the meat to his wife Panina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So you can just imagine the scene. They're all sitting there, right? And here Elkanah, he's, 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 he's gone, to the, gone to the counter. He's put his order in. He's, he's paid, paid for it. He comes back and he says, here you go, Panina. You get, you get a quarter pounder meal, right? Here, here, here you go, little Tommy. You get a happy meal. You know, here you go, Susie. You get a ta- happy meal. And he's going around giving out all the portions. And then he gets to, and he gets to Hannah and he says, look, I got you, I got you the, the, the family bundle. Here it is. I'm not trying to say that the sacrifice is McDonald's. But I'm trying to set the scene for you, Right? As the food's getting distributed, as the food's getting apportioned, Hannah gets double. And this traditionally in, in the history of God's people was a way to show one's favor and affection. You, you, you'll remember that, that Jacob had 12 sons and, and he, he favored the youngest. And then after he had another son, that one then got favored as well. And they got favored by a double portion. So this is sort of common practice to show their love and esteem. And notice, it's because Elkanah recognizes that the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, however, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Again, not in love with this translation. Irritate sounds like, you know, you're in the back seat fighting over who gets to, you know, roll the window down. And, and that's irritating. This is not mere irritation. This, the word means to, to put to shame. To put the red in someone's face. To, to slay someone so badly with an insult. To push and step right on the button that they have no reply but they just go red. And this is what Panina would do to Hannah over and over and over and over again. Now there's lots of sort of interesting lessons we can, we can learn from this. But before we get to that, Let's read how this scene ends. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Oh, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Ooh, we'll get to Elkanah in a minute. But notice what we have here. Hannah has a need. The Lord has withheld the blessing of children from Hannah. Elkanah loves his wife, and he decides that he's going to try and make up for the lack of blessing from the Lord by, in effect, doubling the love. But it doesn't matter how much you multiply love, you cannot replace the blessing of the Lord. So look at the situation that he creates. If you're Penina, you got to be thinking, I'm not seen as a person here at all. I'm just here to breed. 
He doesn't love me, really. The only value he sees me is in my body and my ability to reproduce. And this is what favoritism does. And so you have one who is favored, one who is not. The one whose favor has withheld the blessing, the one who isn't favored is bearing children. And Hannah is there at the worship and she's at the meal and she's there, but she's not really there. Have you ever been in church like that? Like you're there physically, but you're not really there. Like you're, you're, yep, I've shown up. Yep, here we are. We're all doing the thing that we do. We've all come to worship God. We've all come to say our prayers. We've come to do our thing. And you're there, but you're not really there. And that's Hannah. And so they're passing out the meal and she gets the, she gets the big double portion of the sacrifice and she's like, I can't touch this. I, I'm not hungry. Elkanah, why, 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 why? Elkanah is a lesson that good motives don't always lead to good outcomes. <laughs> right? He had a good motive. He wanted to love Hannah. He wanted to show her that, 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 that she was loved. But Elkanah comes here, comes across here like many a husband, and I paint myself with this brush as well. Many a husband has come across as inserting himself into the situation. Notice he reads himself into the situation and he sees, what about me? Can't I make you happy? Can't I be the one, you know, aren't I worth more than 10 sons? I don't think you want to know the answer to that, Elkanah. Don't ask questions you don't want answers to, right? Isn't my love enough? I see you wives, you're sort of like, <laughs> right? So often, often as men, I won't speak for women, but often as men, you think, aha, this is the problem, I must come to fix it. Here's two portions of meat. Surely, with two portions of meat, and my love assured, that will be enough. Surely that will make up for the blessing of the Lord. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And so Elkanah comes across as a nice guy, but he doesn't get what's going on. He doesn't get what's going on in, his, in, his, in the heart of his wife. He doesn't really seem to understand the dynamic that he's created with bringing in this second wife. And so we see here Hannah shamed. As the scene opens upon a time of family, Hannah is despondent. We learn this occasion. Uh, it's another chance for her to be shamed and mistreated and misunderstood. And, and for Hannah, who is coming to worship and knows that God is withholding this blessing, she, again, she's there, but she's not really there. There is something blocking the way. Literally, she cannot consume the sacrifice, she cannot consume the fellowship offering because there's something else there and she's like, I, I just, I just, I can't eat it. I want to ask you, if you feel like you're there but you're not there, you open your Bible or you go to pray or you show up at small group or you show up for, you know, to serve in a ministry or your friend calls you up and says, hey, how are you going with the Lord? And, and, and you're like, do I give the real answer or do I give the fake answer? And you're like, well, I better give the fake answer. 
because I don't really know what the real answer is. If that's you, the suggestion is that there is something that's getting in the way of you being able to participate in fellowship with your God. And the solution is not to just keep going through the motions year after year after year after year after year. You know, they say time heals all wounds. Eh. Time does a lot of things. I don't know if time heals. It does a lot of things. It creates distance. It can create safety. It can, it, it can lead to wisdom. Time can do a lot of things, but I don't know if time actually heals. And the picture here is if there's something that's blocking the fellowship, what is Hannah going to do about it? So we come to verses 9 to 18 in Hannah's vow. Follow with me as I read. Once, when they, once, again, I don't love this translation. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Again, the whole scene, you're meant to be looking at a table. You're meant to be seeing the, the, the group gathered around the table. And the idea is that they've all finished eating. And as they finish eating and they're starting to, you know, collect plates and wipe up and clean up and stuff like that, Hannah just stands up. Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair. You could translate that throne. By the doorpost of the Lord's house. Again, the sacrifice has been made at the, at the tent of meeting, right? The sacrifice has been made there. They bring it out. They have, they have the offering outside. Eli, the priest, is seeing this. Now, a priest's job is to represent God to the people and the people to God. That's what Eli's role is. to represent God to the people and the people to God. So he helps the people bring the sacrifice and he pronounces the blessing of God upon the people. You're going to see him do that. And he's there sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. There's a lot of foreshadowing here, but I don't have time to get into it. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. So, again, thinking about it. You're passing around the cutlery, you're cleaning up, everyone's finished the meal, they're sitting back, relaxed, rejo rejoicing. All of a sudden, Hannah stands up, and she begins weeping bitterly, and in anguish, she's praying. And she makes a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Oh, there's no sin of getting a haircut. What this means is this child was going to be what, what the Bible calls a Nazarite, meaning his life was dedicated to, to God. We've seen this in a few places. In Samson in the book of Judges, that was... That was his calling. He was to be dedicated to the Lord. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He was dedicated to the Lord. And so Hannah, before she even has a son, is saying in her own way, I'm going to vow that this child God is going to be dedicated to you. What does she want? If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. You see, it's one thing for Hannah to simply not be able to know the blessing of bearing children. It's another thing to be constantly provoked by it. There are few things that human beings can stand more 
or less. I forget where I was going with that phrase. There's few things human beings can stand like being constantly provoked. Think about your deepest regret or your area of weakness, the thing that you know you're not good at or the, the, the way you know that you failed or, or the way you know that you seem to fall short time after time after time after time. That area of your shame. And then I want you to imagine somebody who you live with constantly pushing that button, constantly showing it into your face how you have fallen short. Shame is so difficult to abide, particularly if it's given repeatedly over and over and over again. Shame is powerful. We need to watch out how we wield it. Shame wielded over and over and over again attacks a person's sense of identity and who they are. This isn't someone who simply wants a child. This is someone who has been pushed to the brink because of shame. The danger in reading this story is to read it as a simple Somebody wanted something and so they made a promise to God and then God gave them what they wanted. If you just read this story like that, you've missed it. Because what's going on here is you have a person who is, yes, not getting their heart's desire, but then being shamed and pushed to the edge, pushed so far that she gets to the point where she's able to say, God, if you ever gave me a child, I wouldn't even hold on to that child. I would give it back to you. I just want you to look on me. I just want you to remember me. I just want you to see me. Have you ever got to that point? Maybe it's in pain or despair or hopelessness where it's so bad, you've given up on getting the circumstance right. You've given up on asking God to just come in and change the miracle. And all you want God to do is just to look. God, I just want you to look. Just see me. That's where Hannah's at. So she makes this vow to the Lord. As she keeps on praying, Eli observes her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. She's doing this sort of silently. And Eli, the priest, thinks that she's drunk. Again, another person misunderstanding this woman. And he says to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Notice he leads with the accusation. Oh, man. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Remember we talked about Hannah couldn't consume the fellowship offering. She was full. She, 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 she didn't want to eat it. She didn't want to bring it in. We sort of know why now. She had something in her soul she had to get out. She had something in her spirit that she had to pour out before the Lord before she could partake of the fellowship offering. You see, just going through the motions with God is so counterproductive because we think that, that we're blessed by simply doing the things and that it's somehow in the doing of the things that, that we draw closer to God. Now, God uses so many means of grace, but if at the core of your heart, there's a barrier between you and God, you can do all the things you want in the world. You could even get baptized. 
You can take communion. You can go on a mission trip. You could, you could become a missionary or a, some Christian worker. You could do all these things, and it's not going to remove the barrier. Hannah had to get it out. She had to pour it out. And, and it's as if something finally dawned on her. This woman that I live with who's provoking me endlessly and I can't stand and who's shaming me to the core, she sees me but she doesn't love me. She hates me. The husband who loves me has no idea of what's going on in my heart. And here, it's really the only one I have left that I can call on is God. And so she just stands up from the table and just begins this spontaneous outpouring in the presence of the priest who doesn't even get her. It's as if we were watching this on a, on a stage play. It's as if the house lights would change and the spotlight would solely go on Hannah and solely go on the tabernacle where God was. And all the other players are there, but no one else is really there because she is doing business with God. She's not drunk, not so, my Lord. Hannah replies, I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking. It's pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. Again, foreshadowing here. In the, in the next chapter, you're going to meet Eli's two sons, and they are wicked men. The same word that he accuses her of being is what his own sons are. Again, Eli, a bit obtuse. He sees what's happening, but he doesn't understand what's going on. But after hearing Hannah, he, he believes her. He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. It's, it's almost a, a wish promise that he gives here. She says, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. What had changed? Had her circumstances changed? Nope. She poured out her soul to the Lord. There are problems that people can't fix. There's a knowing that can't come through another degree or through, through a, a textbook or through a podcast or a blog There is a place where God works in the heart of his people. And no one else knows how to get in there and no one else knows how to work there. But the consolation of this is that Hannah knew or at least trusted enough to say, I'm going to knock on that door. I'm going to lay my request at his feet. She's a woman of tremendous faith. We see in Hannah a woman of faith who vows to God what he has yet to give her. And although she's already empty, somehow she manages to pour out her soul. Just take a moment and stand back. And I want you to think about this woman and her trust in God. Through the Bible, we have examples before us of people who trusted God when the circumstances did not 
merit that trust. And this is a woman whose womb has been closed by the God she's worshiping. And it's almost like a two-step faith. Number one, she believes that God's still able to do it. God, I know you've shut the door of my womb. I know know you've prevented me from having children, but I still believe you could do it. And so she dares to say, if you give me one. That's the first step. She believes that God can do this. The second step is that she then surrenders the very desire for which she's asking. You see, it's one thing to go to God with your heart's desire and to say, and say, God, you haven't given this to me. I, I really want it, and I'm going to believe that you can give it. And it's a whole nother thing to say, and then if you by chance would give it to me, I will let it go and give it right back to you. And that's what she's going to do next week. You see, it's one thing to make deals with God. It's one thing to say, oh, if you do this, if I do this, but I don't think this is a deal. Yes, it's a vow. Yes, it's a promise that that, that she's making, but this is not some sort of tit-for-tat negotiation. This is surrender. Utter surrender. But not surrender in despair and hopelessness. It's not a surrender that walks away. It's a surrender in faith. Remarkable. What's your heart's desire? Is there something that you, you feel like God has withheld from you? You, 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 you want it, you, you petition him for it. The challenge here is to say, don't ever write off God. Don't ever say to him, this can't happen. Hope and believe and pray and ask and seek. But at the end of the day, if your relationship with God is only one where, whereby he just gives you things, then I think you've missed the point and I've missed the point. You see, it's about a God that you can trust so much that you would say, God, just look on me, and that'll be enough. If I know I have your favor, if I know I have your love, if I know you see me, and I know you can meet my need, that'll be enough. Early the next morning, they arose and they worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. As one commentator put it, the Lord is a great rememberer. <laughs> In the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. More on that next week and what his name means. But from the perspective of the story, she simply recognizes, God, I asked you for this. I asked you for him. The Lord remembers, the Lord remembers his servant. What a comforting thought. If you need some encouragement this week, I want you to, I encourage you to go through the Bible and just, or maybe just make notes, whatever comes to mind of, of times in the scriptures where God has remembered his people. 
One of the first one comes in Genesis chapter 8, after God, just sick of everything, he sends the flood, and he has this man Noah and his family in an ark. And after the judgment, the waters received, it said, the Lord remembered Noah. The Lord remembered his people in slavery in Egypt. The Lord remembers. And then maybe make a list of times where you know the Lord has remembered you. Distinct ways, places, people, circumstances where the Lord has shown himself and says, you see, I remembered you. I heard you. Maybe you need that encouragement. God remembers Hannah and he fulfills his word to her. Walter Brueggemann says this, in the chapters to come in this book, Israel will be tempted to flex its muscles, <laughs> to be inordinately impressed with power and pomp and privilege, and with David. <laughs> but this narrative stands poignantly as a counter-affirmation to what is to come. Israel's new life emerges out of barrenness by the power of God. That power is inexplicable, inexplicable but it is also irresistible. What a wonderful way to put it. This story stands at the beginning of this book because you're going to watch people wrestling for power. You're going to watch people in fear, looking to work out how they're going to overcome their enemies, people who are desperate, people who have all sorts of needs. You're going to watch God anoint leaders over people, good, bad. You're going to watch him come through. But this story at the beginning is not about what people do to get God's favor. It's about what God brings out of barrenness. It's what God brings out of hopelessness, out of people without a future. One of the things that really encourages my heart here at Windsor District Baptist Church is when I hear people talk to me and they say, Jonathan, you don't know what it was like here when our debt was capitalizing daily. We didn't know how we were going to pay for things. We didn't know how we were going to keep the doors open. And now we look and we see the work that God is doing, that God is doing. And we take courage because this is a God whose power is so great that he brings hope out of desperate situations. I want to conclude by thinking about who's at God's door right now. You see, Eli was the priest. And Eli in this story, he's detached. He doesn't know what's going on. He's sitting back in his chair and he's just watching. He can't really hear. He misunderstands. And at the end of the day, he thinks they're wicked. You know, a lot of us see God like Eli. He's sitting back in his chair. He's just sort of watching things. He doesn't really hear us. He doesn't really hear what's going on. And really, you know, left to his own conclusions, he's right enough just to, ready, just to bang the gavel and say, you know what, I'm sure they're doing the wrong thing anyway. But did you know that we don't have an Eli at the door of God's house right now? We have Jesus at the door of God's house right now. The book of Hebrews goes into great detail 
to explain to us how we needed a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses. We needed a high priest who would go up to Hannah at the table. We needed a high priest that Hannah could talk to, someone who could put his arm around her, who could say, there, my child, believe it's okay. The Lord loves you. We needed a high priest who would give us access to God and who would represent us to him and him to us perfectly. I want you to take a moment and think about your need. What's your need? Where's your shame? Where's the shame sitting? And then I want you to think about what's been vowed, because this is the gospel right here. (laughs) The gospel is not that we make vows to God and then win his love. The gospel is this, that God made a vow. Psalm 110, he swore an oath. The Lord said to my Lord, you are a priest forever. Come sit at my right hand. You see, in the gospel, the vow is not the vow that we make. It's the vow that God made to his son and said, you will stand forever interceding for my people. That you have made the sacrifice that opened heaven's door. That you will ever live to plead for them. You see, that's the vow. And he is the one who is remembered. You see, (laughs) it all points back to Jesus. There is nothing, nothing that we do of ourselves (laughs) to crawl and scratch and take hold of that blessing. You can't. You say, well, well, what about the story where, you know, the woman reaches out to take, take hold of his cloak. Surely we got to grab something. Hello, why is he even there? God came down. He made the trip. You see, the Lord God Almighty made the vow, and he said, Jesus, you are a priest forever. He is the one who is standing at God's door. And so, as we remember him, I want you to hear his words. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, the invitation's been given. 
what I want you to do right now is to take a moment, close your eyes, bow your heads, and just in the quietness of your heart, speak to the doorman. Tell them what you need. Hannah named him Samuel because she said, I asked him of the Lord. The Lord's anointed is your high priest. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He was tempted in all the ways a person could be tempted, and yet he never sinned. Trust to him. As the band comes forward, I invite you to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Father, I feel like so often my prayers are gathering mold in a container that I've never opened. <laughs> so Lord, just help us to open ourselves to you now, to ask of you. And Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit who hears the wordless groans. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.